is May 28th, and I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded a bonus episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes Program. Given the low temperature and potential for frost and freeze damage, we spent some time talking about the potential impact to crops, as well as management considerations to make. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join the discussion and get questions answered. Bonus episodes like this one will be released as needed. The audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Today's webinar was moderated by Jared Goplin, Crops Educator. On the webinar were guests Jeff Coulter, Extension Corn Agronomist, Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist, both with the University of Minnesota in St. Paul, as well as uh, on the line was Joachim Wiersma, a small grain agronomist with the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in, in Crookston, and Hans Kandel, Extension Agronomist in Broadleaf Crops at North Dakota State University. He gave us some perspective from the situation west of the Red River. The guests and moderators addressed freeze and frost injury of crops. Thanks, and remember to tune in both weekly and when situations develop for a discussion on the current crop situation as well as crop and pest management topics. Welcome to the Strategic Farming Field Notes program uh, from the University of Minnesota Extension. We're uh, happy you joined us today, kind of a bonus session on some of the low temperatures that we saw last night and some of the low temperatures that are forecasted for this evening. We have a number of special guests on with us today. We have Dr. Jeff Coulter, Dr. Seth Nave, Dr. Hans Kandel, and uh, Dr. Joachim Wiersma on to discuss uh, some of the management implications and concerns or lack thereof uh, regarding some of the cold temperatures that we've gotten um, last night and, and will likely have uh, tonight as well. So it looks like so far uh, between uh, 29 and 30 degrees in Oakley in Red Lake County. Uh, Polk County still assessing some of that damage, uh, some slight frost on those shingles. Um, I did talk to Troy Salzer in northeastern Minnesota, where they did have areas that got down to 23, 22 degrees in some areas. Um, so that certainly is, is a concern. Uh, there was some corn up in that area. So um, I think to sort of kick things off, um, we'll maybe hand it off to Jeff Coulter. And uh, Jeff, if you want to comment on, on sort of your, your gut feeling and, and any concerns you might have about corn, uh, that's probably at the top of everyone's list regarding uh, any potential issues. Um, and then we'll move on to, to Seth to comment on soybeans um, and go from there. So Jeff, I guess you want to comment on corn? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jared. So uh, the symptoms that we'll see on corn is discolored water-soaked leaves that later are going to dry out and turn brown. And fortunately, corn recovery from freeze injury is greatest when the corn is small, uh, when it's less than the three leaf collar stage. Right now, the growing point on the corn is about three quarters of an inch below the soil surface. So most plants will be protected and they'll be able to recover. The only, I guess, one issue though, is when, uh, if we have a very cold uh, temperatures and it freezes that top inch of soil, in that case, the plant would die and it's not likely going to come back. Uh, it's gonna take a few days for these plants to start to recover. Uh, generally, we get new leaf growth starting about three days after the freeze. So early next week, we should, we should see something, especially after the air temperatures start to warm up. Uh, right now, there's not much that one can do really to 
see how well it's coming along. Uh, if you want to get an early jump on assessing your fields, you could go out there and, and dig a few plants up, split the stems and see if that growing point, which is located about three quarters of an inch below the soil, to see if that's still in good condition. But uh, if we can wait until early next week before assessing the fields, uh, that would probably be the best use of time. Uh, most of the fields are not going to need replanting. Fortunately, the corn is able to uh, recover fairly well uh, from freeze injury when it's small like this. Uh, what we will see next week is that we'll get some new leaf tissue starting to grow and trying to push out of the plant. And at that same time, that new leaf tissue is going to be hung up on this old dead tissue uh, that has had the freeze injury. Uh, so it's gonna take a little bit of time for this new leaf tissue to break free of that old tissue. And during this process, some of the plants could kind of resemble like a buggy whip where uh, the, the new leaf tissue is kind of tied up in the old tissue and it's gonna take some wind and some, some uh, growth for that to break, through, to break free. Uh, fortunately, most plant, plants will be able to break free and uh, resume uh, relatively normal growth uh, after a few days, probably by mid to late next week, things should really start to look better. Uh, but if there are very large corn plants, say like the V3 stage or larger, and those were severely injured by the freeze, some of those can get really hung up and that have difficulty of that new leaf tissue breaking free. And some of those plants uh, may not recover quite as well. But uh, for the most part, what I've heard is the corn has been about B2 stage or younger, and therefore it should recover fairly quickly. Uh, again, I don't think we need to worry about replanting. Uh, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Uh, there is some question about what kind of yield reduction we could expect in fields that have been severely injured by the freeze. There has been some research done in Wisconsin where they took a scissors and they went right down to the ground and they clipped the, the corn plants off at the V2 stage. And they found that when that was done, it reduced the yield by about 8%. However, the recovery of freeze damaged plant, plants may actually be a little slower than that of plants that were cleanly cut off at the soil surface. That's because that new vegetative growth needs to break free of that dead tissue. Therefore, yield loss due to freeze damage at V2 could probably be a little greater than 8% if all of the plants were damaged. Uh, so that's kind of an overview on corn. Another thing to maybe look about or think about is, uh, you know, how much of the final stand was reduced, how many plants we lost. I don't think we're gonna have a lot of plants that actually die, but there may be some plants that just don't recover very well and they are unlikely to produce much grain. So that may reduce the plant population a little bit but I think those plants are gonna be fairly rare and I think most plants will recover. Uh, so that's kind of a, an overview on corn. I will turn it back to Jared and the others. Yeah, I guess one of the other uh, things that has come up, Tom Peters mentioned it earlier um, and I see there's a comment now as well about some of the high winds that were experienced recently and maybe Hans, you, uh, you could comment on this as well, but you know, it's kind of a combination of stressors recently. Um, so is that any added concern or, you know, considering that growing point is still below the ground, um, you know, it's probably going to be all about equal regardless. Um, so I don't know if you want to comment on that. And then as well as, you know, how are these plants going to recover if, if we continue to hit those low temperatures in the next few days? Is that more of a concern 
um, going to cause bigger issues or, or not so much? So I guess, Jeff, I don't know, it, these compounding issues, is that a concern for you or, or not so much? And then we'll turn it to, to Hans. Yeah, I guess uh, when you talk about wind, Jared, are you talking about like sandblasting injury to young seedlings? Yeah, in many cases, I think that was was uh, the primary concern, yes. Yeah, that generally is kind of cosmetic. Um, doesn't have a huge effect on yield. If we get plants that are cut off at the soil surface or, or near so due to blowing sand particles, um, you know, that's, you know, that's going to affect yield, definitely. And like I talked about with that study in Wisconsin that found when they cut plants off at the soil surface at V2, that that resulted in about an 8% yield reduction. So yeah, some of that sandblasting and uh, cut off plants will, will definitely hurt yield. It may be somewhat similar of an effect uh, as what we would see with a freeze. With regards to the coming days, yeah, it looks like the air temperatures are supposed to be a little cooler than what we would be expecting this time of year. That's gonna slow development. So it may take a little longer than normal for uh, you know a lot of new leaf growth and for these plants to be able to break free. Um, but, you know, I'm optimistic by, uh, you know, mid to late next week that things should really start to be looking better. I do see that there was one comment in the chat about uh, what might happen to corn that is emerging or that was planted last week. That corn, I think, will fare very well. Uh, the smaller the corn, uh, the easier it is to take uh, freezing injury. And in, the, in that situation for corn planted last week, or that was just emerging, I would expect very little effect on yield. So Hans, um, I guess kind of, you want to give a little bit of an overview, you know, what you guys saw on the, on the other side of the river in North Dakota and uh, any concerns, I guess, going forward there? Yeah, so this week we have had uh, quite a bit of uh, wind and uh, some quite clouds of, of dirt fl uh, floating around. Uh, there was one report where some of the, the soil in the germinating wheat or around the young plant uh, dislodged. And so uh, a little bit of the uh, soil was blown away. And so if you then think about freeze, uh, so that exposed a little bit of an area that uh, was uh, underground before this week. And now it is you know, minute, but it's still maybe uh, more prone to frost damage. So if you look at the frost, um, you know, that is mostly the northern part. And in North Dakota, the, the coldest point that I saw uh, was kind of in Botno, which is 25 degrees. That is central North Dakota. If we go to the more to the valley towards Minnesota, it was more in the 27 degree range. And then Humboldt was 28. And as Joachim says, Lake of the Wood, 27. So uh, I think most of that was just uh, around the sunrise period. Uh, coming uh, into work in Fargo, we had, uh, you know, temperatures of around that 32. There was indeed also frost on uh, the cars and uh, the shingles on the rooftops. And in the lower areas, we saw some frost. I called around to several places and uh, Langdon, uh, they had just, um, just around 32 degrees. So they feel they didn't have any issues. But if you went a little bit of a higher elevation, where the temperatures were just slightly lower. There was probably a couple of hours where it was just kind of in that 29, 30 degree range. So it is a little bit early to know what it will do to our crops. 
uh, and I'm thinking about uh, you know the warm season crops like the, uh, the soybeans. They are of course a little bit more prone than wheat, and probably Joachim can talk a bit more about the wheat. Um, but as far as uh, solid reports, we don't have any solid reports. But for soybeans, you know the cotyledon stage uh, is a little bit more forgiving than uh, further stages in the growth. So we uh, we have had a very cool. Uh, a couple of weeks so a lot of the soybeans is just um, you know still coming out of the ground so it is hard to know how much we will see at, as exactly uh, the damage uh, and that will be unfolding in the next day or so then you will see the damage. So Seth uh, you want to I mean what are you hearing in terms of soybeans um, kind of what are your concerns and then then we'll maybe go over to Yoakum to, to comment on the small grain side, um, as well as any winter cereals that might be nearing that heading stage where we're a little bit more concerned. So, Seth? Yeah, I just I just want to repeat, you know, um, what what Hans just mentioned about the soybeans is the soybeans that that first emerging in that crook stage and then early cotyledonary stage, you've got a lot of dense tissue that's all kind of packed together. It kind of holds the heat in there a little bit, and uh, it's much more resistant to, to frost. Again, we're talking about soybean that has um, that has a growing point above the soil surface. So, if we take out the top of that plant entirely, that plant is gone to us, and so uh, it's completely different than these um, than these cereal crops. So, um, really, we're talking about that top of that plant. So, as that plant grows and we get towards um, uh, VC into V1, uh, they're going to be a lot more sensitive. Um, if you just, once they get beyond there, if you could take off just the top of the plant, we still have axillary uh, buds down lower that we could still form uh, a shoot from even at the cotyledons themselves. So it's possible uh, to have regrowth. So again, it's like corn, we have to keep an eye on it and, and see what happens after the fact. I think from a practical standpoint, what I'm most interested, especially after hearing Hans's discussion, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more from Hans about the relative growth stage across the valley. And I've, you know, I've only been up through the, the, the Southern Valley and the soybeans are up pretty tall in the Southern Valley where there is just enough warmer, even though it's very dry, um, soybeans are, we had a little bit more opportunity to get in and soybeans probably planted a little bit early plus a little bit more heat. But also on the other hand, those soybeans tended, my, uh, the folks that I talked to in the Southern Valley uh, they were in that 32 degree range, um, just some frost in some protected areas was all. Uh, so they really missed it down there. So I'm wondering if there's a, if there's a spot here where, where we may have dodged the bullet by having small enough beans further north where we had enough, um, enough um, cold temperatures long enough. So maybe Hans, can you, yeah, can so you what, comment? Yeah, what I've seen is that uh, in, you know, the trial plots that I planted, uh, in mid-May, uh, we were uh, maybe at the V1, uh, just uh, the unifoliates uh, till the first leaf, but uh, most of the northern part would have been just in the cotyledon states or unifoliate states. So I, I think we, um, we probably are in that early growth stage. There was a, a question also about uh, what about uh, hardening? Uh, there was a paper written where they did that was in a uh, controlled uh, uh, environment with looking at the temperature and then frost damage. They saw that if the plant had been cool, the tolerance to frost damage was higher. 
uh, and then with the cotyledon states, you know, the, the frost uh, with that 28 degree in their study uh, was in that range of uh, about 10% uh, at the cotyledon states. And then if you went to the trifoliate, it was like 20%. So there is definitely a difference in, in the tolerance if the crop had cooler uh, conditions and in uh, the earlier versus the later stages. So, and then of course the, the frost temperature makes a big difference too. So can I jump in here guys for the soybeans? How long are, are you uh, suggesting people wait before they get out and start assessing stand? You know, Jeff Recorn said, wait a few days, maybe early next week. You know, what kind of recommendation might you give for, for people interested in doing some evaluation of how things may have been impacted? Well, I would say, you know, you start typically if it is a nice day, like it is actually pretty nice out now, that tissue will uh, show some darkening uh, pretty quick. So within a 24 hour period, you, you probably can see which tissues are damaged. But as you know, the growing point in uh, the, the soybeans is between the two cotyledon. But if the growing point itself gets nipped, it might be if the cotyledons still uh, are alive that we wake up the you know the axillary buds and that you won't see till a few days later. Hey Seth, yes, sir. there there was a a question in the Q and A box at Clearbrook got down to twenty four degrees and they said the stand looks pretty tough. Um, worst case scenario, if you go out and you do evaluate this and it doesn't look good. Are you thinking or recommending anything for, um, depending upon interseeding or, or letting it go or, or replant, but that would be worst case scenario, but 24 degrees is pretty cold. Yeah, so it's a really good question. And you know, this is one of those deals that's, it's so location and, and um, you know, farm specific about what we wanna do and, and how things look. There's so much weird stuff going on this year. We had dry conditions and pre's weren't activated. We have some weeds coming or not. You know, these are these are now big concerns. You know, 15 years ago, we we were just going to hit these things with Roundup and be done. <clears throat> but now we're really driving a lot of this by weed control. And so, I think there's an opportunity. Um, there's an opportunity in some cases to kind of hit reset on some of these things. That so if you break it all the way back down to zero. Uh, we're probably talking about a, you know, about a 10% yield hit, 15% relative to an early planting um, by replanting today. So, um, and then as we go forward, we've, we're losing, um, we're losing a little bit of yield uh, on a daily basis. So looking at the weather, uh, what's the weather forecast going to be relative to the risk of, of, of planting, uh, of replanting now, um, ripping it up versus uh, spiking it in? I would say the best alternative, if we don't have weed control issues, is to actually spike in soybeans. It's actually found to be pretty um, successful, especially very early, like, like it is now. Uh, we can have very good success by uh, supplementing an existing stand and, and planting in between those rows without much problem. Again, we just have to let the weed control question drive the answer here, though, and make sure that we're doing the right thing and we're not creating more um, or exacerbating an existing uh, weed control issue. But if, if the pre's were working, if everything was looking good, um, uh, spiking in some 
some plants now is actually a, a lower risk issue because we're not actually, we don't have to have a final stand on those existing soybeans to be able to go in. Uh, we're not going to damage too many of, you know, we're going to damage some percentage of them, but we're going to leave a lot there. And so it actually allows us a little bit more flexibility, uh, again, aside from the weed control side. Does that help with your question, Dave? Is there any gaps there that I missed? No, I think that's it's, it's individual field assessment and certainly um, take a look at that. And I think Ryan's point about how long you needed to wait if you're down to 24 degrees and Hans indicated in there within a couple of days to make that assessment. But already at 24 degrees, they're seeing you know, damage obviously to those existing uh, uh, tissues. So probably um, good, Jared here, I don't know if you, you wanna move over to, uh, to Yoakum at this point. You know, I would one one thing just jumping in to restate that that what was just mentioned. I think this question about what do we what can we do today? And there's this tendency for extension university people to tell everybody to wait a few days. I think it's really important to get out and take a look, and farmers are going to do that anyway. So let's not dissuade people from doing it. Hans mentioned that it's good to get out, see what's there. You can't probably make a final decision on this, but at least find out what's there. Now you can call your seed guy and see what there is for seed available. You can look back on your herbicide labels. You can make all those, you can go through all those mental gymnastics on this. Uh, and it may take a couple of days before you get really ready to go. You can get that planner back pulled out. And, and so then you can be ready to go. So I think a lot of this can be happening simultaneously. So one comment uh, about weed control. I just talked to my colleagues here uh, that are specialized in wheat issues they mentioned that uh, be also careful if you have frost damage with applying herbicides immediately because that may you know cause some additional uh, issues with uh, the soybean and it is not necessarily if it is roundup the roundup but it might be uh, the additional stuff that is uh, in the surfactants and others so be careful with applying too quickly when the plant is still recuperating uh, from this uh, potential damage yeah, I think we will uh, shift gears here for a minute. Uh, looks like Yoakum's sharing his video now too. So um, Yoakum, you wanna, have you uh, had any chances to kind of evaluate what things look like uh, in the valley, uh, especially up north for, uh, for the wheat or the other small grains? I know winter cereals are probably a little more on the concerning side, just being further along in development, uh, but you wanna make some comments and assessments there? Okay, so hopefully you can hear me because I have my headset in. Uh, as far as spring cereals, I don't think it got anywhere cold enough that those are damaged. Uh, the story is very similar to corn, uh, but you know the growing point is below the ground surface. Uh, and even if we have some uh, above ground tissue damage, uh, which I think is very unlikely given that we had a couple of cool days preceding this, uh, the spring cereals I'm not worried about at all. Um, I'm a little worried about the earliest rye fields because they're just about to start heading. Uh, I took heading notes this morning uh, in Crookston here on the station. There was no signs whatsoever of any frost injury right around Crookston. Um, I did talk right away to one of the hybrid rye growers up in Lake of the Woods County and Roseau County. They dipped down to 26, 27. And there is a risk of some sterility. Um, and it's very difficult to see now. Uh, the, you know, the rye is going to shed pollen later on. Uh, whether or not that pollen is still viable 
uh, is hard to say until basically seed set. So I told this grower to uh, the winter wheat, you know, I told the, the rye grower, basically we'll see how much ergot we end up with. All right, because that will be basically kind of tell the story later on. There's nothing we can do at this point in time. Uh, the winter wheat, uh, most of that on the station, and I think most of the commercial fields are uh, just starting to allocate up here, and those should be okay. Uh, again, the crop hardened off a little bit. I don't expect any problems there. So the, the risk is really dry beans, uh, sugar beets, soybeans, and sunflowers are at greatest risk. And I think the risk area, as Hans pointed out, is the valley and the beach ridge on the east side from here all the way up to Lake of the Woods County. Yeah, I know when I you mentioned sugar beets, when I talked to Tom Peters, his bigger concern was uh, in the valley, especially was was from some of the windy weather. He expects there'll be several thousand acres of replants just based on some of that, the you know the soil uh, or sandblasting injury and and some from from some of those wind events, uh, rather than than yeah, the cold. Yeah, you temps. know, the this is a year to that we're going to remember. Uh, I've been in the valley 25 years now. I never saw that much uh, real estate on the move as I did Tuesday. I talked to a couple of the central consultants, one of which said that he had lost five quarters of beets uh, and three, four quarters of soybeans on a little bit lighter ground. And there was nothing. I mean, the, be the beets just got blown out completely, and as did the soybeans on Tuesday. Joachim uh, and Hans, I guess, too. Um, any other concerns with that uh, sort of sandblasting injury? Is there any longer lasting issues that that could uh, bring up? Any type of disease concerns? Um, any other follow-up issues that might arise due to these events? For the small grains, none. Somebody wants attention here. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with the sandblasting, we often see uh, some wounding uh, but it is still early in the season, so I don't know that we have a high percentage of, uh, of chances for diseases at the current time. So um, I, I think it is just uh, damaging of the, of the leaf tissue. So if you lose tissue, that sets the plant back, it has to heal. So a little bit of energy is needed to, to heal some of the plants. Joachim, we do have a comment. Uh, somebody likes your dog, so good work there. <laughs> also want a clarification here. on. Uh, frost uh, increasing the chance of ergot and rye uh, and hybrid rye, is that correct? Increasing that just due to some sterility issues? Yeah, so so the ergot, increase in ergot is simply a function of poor seed set. Um, if the pollen that's being formed right now as that crop is heading um, is indeed turns out to be sterile, uh, you'll get very poor seed set, which then increases the odds of ergot. And so that's in a way, we're going to see seed set, and if the seed set is poor, we'll see more ergot. I uh, had a chance to talk to uh, to some other folks too in terms of some of the forage production, especially in northeastern Minnesota. Um, for the most part, uh, the feeling there was that things will be primarily okay, but uh, Nathan Druitz in central Minnesota was a little bit concerned. Uh, some of the fields there that may have just been uh, cut within the last week or so that already had winter injury issues. Um, kind of stress plants to begin with, but uh, you know, at this point, there's there's not necessarily a lot we can do until until we see what those uh, crown buds and some of those that regrowth looks like. 
but certainly some issues where uh, fields were already stressed, uh, you know, just keep an eye on, on those in terms of potentially needing to come and intercede some grasses or something like that. Um, you know, these are in, in many cases, some fields that already uh, may have needed some attention, but uh, just some other concerns that have been cited. Maybe to follow up on that, Hans, um, in my time at NDSU a long time ago in, in grad school, I know your predecessor, Dwayne Berglund, there was a number of different articles about a number of different crops, uh, dry beans, flax, and so forth, and their early, their damage potential to early frost. And I did find some of it online, but I don't know, maybe later on we can um, put that in the chat box or you can send it to us, Hans, but I think there are some um, some good information from years gone by on the same phenomenon that's obviously happened. Yeah, we we do have it. Uh, I haven't had a chance to uh, to dig them out of the cabinets, uh, but uh, I can do that and send some of those to you, uh, David. There's also guess... a question here um, regarding uh, orchards and vineyards and those types of things. And um, I don't know that there's a lot of expertise on that on this call, but I do know that uh, Annie Claude, she's the extension educator in the in horticulture that works primarily with uh, fruiting crops. I know she had posted some things uh, last night about about um, some of these these places uh, needing to irrigate uh, or turning on their irrigation systems to try to to prevent frost uh, injury or, or freeze damage in those situations. But uh, aside from that, I go I don't know. I guess unless Seth or uh, Yoko, maybe you guys have uh, have some secret uh, uh, berry experience in your back pocket. I don't know. <laughs> I know, but irrigation is indeed often used in the citrus in Florida to and in apples in the Netherlands to indeed prevent frost damage. Uh, the opposite, however, is true with a couple of our uh, row crops, including sugar beets. I think it was about six, seven years ago, we had a scare with sugar beets uh, also. And I have one grower who has a center pivot uh, along the river. And they figured that they would um, irrigate to prevent frost. That actually made it worse. Um, the interesting thing is that was actually, that was work done 40 years ago. And you mentioned Dwayne Berglund. Uh, with everything having moved to the web, what we're doing in some cases is relegating these really useful pieces of information to digital archives, or in the case of Hans and in my cases, uh, our filing cabinet, um, which means that they're not readily accessible. So on the websites itself, because in a way, you know, it happens once in a blue moon, uh, but some of this work has been done in the past on how much these crops can, can handle. And so I encourage uh, Hans also to dig some of this up and see if we can get them in a way republished very quickly. The, um, the person that asked that question, Jared, I think was anonymous, but if they want to email either myself or yourself, Jared, we will get them in touch with Annie, who's our horticulture specialist, um, and she can uh, help them out certainly in a lot of those particular areas. <clears throat> I was going to also just mention briefly, Jared, what about um, the, the concern, I know, with the weather and if you are planning a post-emergence herbicide, um, you know, and we control a little bit until those crops recover. The other phenomenon, of course, there are some seed treatments on the market sometimes that cause some of the cotyledons uh, to turn purple, uh, you know, under stress conditions as well. 
and you have to kind of wait some of those things out, basically. So there's some other things that are going on in the field that aren't, they're impacted, but not directly frost. I think it kind of goes into that bucket of stress. Um, and at this point, obviously, if the crop is stressed, um, just be mindful of that and try to try to do what you can to to not exacerbate the issue, I guess, in many cases, in terms of herbicides and, and other applications and those types of things. So we are getting close to sort of our half hour mark here. So if there are additional questions, uh, and I think we would be happy to stick on after if there are additional questions or people have more specific follow-up uh, concerns, we're more than happy to sort of hang on the line here for you. But uh, if there are other questions or concerns, um, we would ha be happy to, um, to answer some of those. I've got a tangential topic here for you, and I'd like um, Yoakum and maybe Hans to weigh in on this, but we've had some interest within the state of Minnesota to expand our weather station network. Um, and they're using Endon as a great example of the value of good um, uh, weather station networks out there that we do not have uh, really outside the valley. So I just wanted to support this idea because there's a, there's a big movement towards um, radar predicted weather and those types of things that can give us uh, estimates of these kind of things. But these Endon stations are really valuable for this kind of information. And we're not gonna get these kind of estimates uh, based on, on uh, um, um, any kind of uh, remote sense data. So I just wanted to put a plug in for uh, public support for these uh, networks of, of weather stations. I think that's really important. And so if anybody has an opportunity to lend their support to those kind of things, I'd, I'd encourage them to do so. Thank you, Seth. You know, it's called the Endon system. And if it was named anything else instead of the letters ND in front of them, I think some of us um, in the state of Minnesota wouldn't be as reluctant to join. Uh, the Valley is the exception. The potato growers now have signed on. Ideally, a mesoscale network should be across the Northern Plains because that's when it really gets powerful, uh, including the applications that are all based on this mesoscale network. Uh, Daryl Richardson is doing an absolutely phenomenal job. Uh, and I talk to Daryl often. He wishes he has more stations uh, across Minnesota. The South Dakota Mesoscale Network is building uh, as there is in Montana. And he envisions actually them all joining together in one major network across the basically Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. So there Thanks, is a, a couple of additional sort of questions and concerns about really going forward. So um, in some areas of the state, and Seth, you cited earlier, uh, maybe towards the east, um, having additional concerns tonight. Um, you know, is there anything that people should be thinking about now? Um, any kind of words of the wise, I guess? Uh, I don't think in many cases we can go out and cover our soybean fields, but um, I guess maybe to sort of wrap things up, uh, maybe make a few comments on in terms of things that people might be able to think about now to, to be better prepared to make decisions later. So Seth, we'll start with you. Yeah, unfortunately, there isn't there isn't much we can do. Um, I had a conversation with my colleague from Wisconsin just before this, and we had the same he had the same question: What can we do? And it's um, you know there just isn't a lot a lot we can do, and so um, just hope for cloud cover uh, and see what we get overnight, and hopefully things don't dip as low as they have in some of those spots. Um, and then just be ready. I think we had good discussion here about a lot of a lot of steps that farmers can take. So. 
um, I think uh, just utilizing some of the information we talked about is fine. I guess, uh, Jeff, uh, you want to, um, any other kind of concluding comments before we, we sign off for the day? No, I'm uh, fairly optimistic about the corn. I think it was small enough that uh, if we get some tissue damage, it should recover fairly quickly. Uh, like Hans and Seth said earlier, we could probably uh, get an assessment just by, you know, driving by the fields here later today or tomorrow and, uh, you know, seeing how much tissue is actually damaged. And by mid next week or maybe a little later, we should really start to see this uh, corn start to grow out of it. So I'm fairly optimistic for corn. I don't think we will need uh, any replanting for corn. Jared, are we planning about a subsequent short crop e-news to highlight some of these and maybe incorporate some of the things that Hans is able to find in his file cabinet? And then along with that, we do have another session uh, set for next Wednesday, um, uh, Crop Notes, and that's going to be on soil fertility. Um, but we can also, you know, entertain some follow-up questions as well. Yeah, so if you uh, do have additional or want additional information, Jeff Coulter already did uh, get his article posted to the Minnesota Crop News blog. I expect some additional information to be posted there soon. So if you do have additional questions or follow-up, uh, feel free to check back there uh, for additional information. I also put everybody's email, uh, the speakers for today, I put their email addresses in the chat box. So if you guys do have additional questions, I'm sure everybody would be happy to follow up um, with any additional uh, questions or concerns that you might have uh, regarding today's conversation. And uh, I guess, again, like Dave mentioned, we will be meeting again back for our normal sessions. Uh, I, I do thank everybody for joining our bonus session for the day. Uh, it was really kind of a last minute deal, uh, put it together in just a couple of hours here. So uh, if you want to tune in again on Wednesday morning, we will have a uh, further discussion on um, side dressing and fertility considerations um, for corn, especially, but other crops as well. So if you want to join again next week, uh, Wednesday morning at 7.30 a.m. And if you're not able to join us live, we again are continuing to post these via the podcasting platforms. So feel free to subscribe to Strategic Farming Field Notes on any of the podcast platforms that you guys utilize. So thank you for attending today. I appreciate uh, you all spending some time uh, with us today. And if anyone has follow-up questions, I know there are a number of uh, journalists on today, but if you would like uh, to connect and make sure you get phone numbers or emails from folks, uh, feel free to stick, stick on a little bit longer to, to get any information that you might need. So with that, thank you.